record the 70s. This is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, history, and culture of the 1970s. On this episode, we will take a look at the birth of the Benefit Music Festivals, something that will take off in the 1980s, but owes a debt to the 1970s for getting it off the ground. Before I do that, I'd like to thank the many, many new listeners who have jumped on board this summer. Uh, for the record, the 70s is coming up on its one-year anniversary, which is definitely a milestone to celebrate. If you like the show, subscribe, follow, tell somebody about it, and give the show a nice review so that other fans of 70s music and history can find it. Speaking of anniversaries... We are coming up on the 40th anniversary of the No Nukes Music Festival held in New York City on September 19th through the 23rd in 1979. However, the idea for a music benefit like this was hatched at the beginning of the 1970s in 1971 by George Harrison, who was officially about one year post-Beatles mentally, was probably more like four or five post-Beatles. This, of course, uh, was the concert for Bangladesh at Madison Square Garden in New York. Music festivals were not new, but the idea of holding a music festival to raise money was a new idea. Ravi Shankar, an Indian musician and George's friend, asked George for help, and to hear Harrison tell it, it was just that simple. He was asked for help, and he helped. Why? What was happening in Bangladesh? Where is Bangladesh? It is in Asia, east of India, located on the Bay of Bengal. In 1971, the Pakistan province of East Bengal was trying to liberate itself from Pakistan. In an attempt to prevent that, the government and army of Pakistan shot people who were trying to get away, just shot them on sight and committed mass genocide. The Pakistan army was unsuccessful in stopping the rebellion as Bangladesh is now an independent nation, but not before anywhere between 300,000 and 3 million people were killed. According to an article published by the BBC, Pakistan claims it was between 300 and 500,000. Bangladesh says it was 3 million. Nonetheless, there was widespread flooding, starvation, and millions of people were homeless as they were trying to get away from the army. This is two years after Woodstock, which was obviously a music festival of epic proportions and could have been a disaster of epic proportions if it had not been for the goodwill of the people in attendance. There was no blueprint for organizing a benefit concert that would be a success. Harrison said on the Dick Cavett show that they only had about three or four weeks to put this whole thing together, and they wanted to be really upfront about giving the money to a charity so that people didn't think that they were keeping it and trying to rip them off. They were going to give it to the Red Cross, but Harrison had heard, quote, stories about the Red Cross only helping white people if, say, a tornado or a hurricane hit and they were not helping black people, so they went with UNICEF instead. UNICEF is an organization that works with children or works on behalf of children around the world who are experiencing some kind of disaster or crisis that results in starvation or homelessness or any of the array of things 
that can happen. So UNICEF, had they been involved in the beginning, for example, if Apple, and I don't, not that Apple, I mean the Beatles Apple, if Apple had donated money to UNICEF, that could have kept the whole IRS out of it, but Apple actually financed this benefit, and then when the, the benefit was over, the IRS got suspicious. They didn't quite believe that this whole uh, benefit was for charity and not for profit, and as a result, uh, the IRS kept all that money tied up for, say, 10 years. Now, if you want to know the ins and outs of all of this tax and legal drama, I will direct you to an article written by David Johnston back in 1985 for the Los Angeles Times called The Benefit That Almost Wasn't, which I have a link to on my show notes. Another word, too, about what Harrison said about the Red Cross only helping white people. On the Dick Cavett show, and by the way, if you don't know what that is, it was kind of like the precursor to the late-night talk shows. Dick Cavett appears to be trying to get George Harrison to walk that statement back. I don't know. I linked to that also on my show notes, ftr70.com. You can watch it for yourself and, and see what you think. But the music, let's talk about the music at this festival, the concert for Bangladesh. The concerts, I should say, because there were two. They were back-to-back, and they generated the least amount of money of this, this whole venture. The triple album and the concert movie made a lot more money, which Ravi Shankar assumed would be true. That is why he wanted to have an album. He said, and I quote from a central New Jersey newspaper clipping from 1972, he said the following. He said, another headline was not the most effective way of letting the world know what was happening to the people of Bangladesh. The public is so used to reading about disaster. They read about a devastating flood in one part of the world and an earthquake in another. They read about violence in Ireland and the Congo. And after a while, it's just another day and another headline. That is from uh, Barbara Lewis, who wrote that article way back in 1972 for the Central New Jersey Home News. So the shows were held on August 1st, 1971, and one was in the afternoon, and one was at night, which is when the movie was made. You could get tickets for fifty, dollars $4.50 on the mezzanine level, 6 or $7 for a bit closer than that, or if you were a big spender, $25 for a seat in the orchestra pit. Who would you see? Well, Harrison, of course, and Ringo Starr, and Bob Dylan, Billy Preston, Leon Russell. I'd say George Harrison had some friends. Now, in 1968, when Harrison was still a Beatle, he wrote a little song that Paul McCartney and John Lennon were not too interested in. That was kind of par for the course. Uh, In the documentary Living in a Material World, which is about Harrison's life and is currently airing on Netflix, Harrison said that since he could not get his band interested in his song, but thought that it was a pretty good song, he invited another friend to play on the record. The friend said, are you sure? Because nobody plays on Beatles songs. And Harrison said, it's my song. So his friend played on the record, and his friend showed up for the benefit concert for Bangladesh 
three years later. friend is Eric Clapton, who played on the recording of While My Guitar Gently Weeps. He played lead guitar. However, uh, if you watch the movie or a clip on YouTube of this performance, and it looks like Clapton is about to doze off, well, he is. Eric Clapton was completely strung out on heroin at this point in his life. In fact, he told Harrison that he would only participate in the concert for Bangladesh if Harrison could guarantee that he would be kept supplied with heroin for the week that he was in New York. Harrison said, I I don't think that'll be a problem. We are in New York after all. And so sure enough, Clapton shows up and uh, there's, I guess, a a bowl of heroin. I'm not sure. There is heroin waiting for him. However, uh, apparently it wasn't good enough. Whoever went to get the heroin went out and got street heroin which was not strong enough. So for for a junkie like Clapton, this was like going cold turkey, and he was he was in bad shape. Uh, never mind though for him as far as far as playing. I mean, he was there. You can see he was there, uh, not using the right guitar apparently. But Harrison carried him through that performance in what is definitely, I think, one of the greatest Beatles songs and probably George Harrison's best song, even if it was Eric Clapton's worst performance on stage. As far as Clapton being bad that night, that is how good Bob Dylan was that night. That was no sure thing either. Uh, Dylan had not performed on stage for two years. He had a very serious motorcycle accident in 1966, and that put an end to his Blonde on Blonde tour, and he kind of became a bit of a recluse. He was going through some of the same things that the Beatles and George Harrison had gone through, a complete lack of privacy, and you couldn't even go out and live your life like a normal human being. In fact, a guy named A.J. Weberman, who stocked Dylan's trash can every day looking for memorabilia, wrote some article about Dylan and would stand out in front of his house and just pull all of the trash out looking for some pieces of Dylan's life. Um, In light of all that, it would have not been surprising if Dylan did not play, but play he did. 
concert for Bangladesh. You know, Bob Dylan's singing voice, to me, is kind of an acquired taste, but I don't think he's ever sounded better than he sounded at that night. Hey, by the way, uh, backing Bob Dylan up on the tambourine was none other than Ringo Starr. For the record, Lennon and McCartney had both been invited to participate in this concert, but they both declined. Ringo, who was also kind of finding his way as a solo artist, released the single It Don't Come Easy in April 1971. George Harrison, who had a huge hit with My Sweet Lord as a solo artist in late 1970, and then it kind of branched into 71 too, had a, how shall we say, significant role in writing this song. So significant that I do not think you would get much of an argument for just giving Harrison credit for it. Still, Ringo sang it, and in the week of June 12th, 1971, It Don't Come Easy made it to its highest spot on the Billboard Hot 100 at number four. Here is a bit of the studio version of Ringo Starr's It Don't Come Easy. of calling the radio station and requesting that song, probably when I had no idea that Ringo Starr was a former Beatle. What did I know? I was a a dumb kid at that time. Still a very catchy tune. It don't come easy. Now, you might be thinking that none of this sounds very controversial, helping starving children and homeless people who've been terrorized by their government. You would be right. Although I should point out something that David Johnston mentioned in his L.A. Times article. The benefit was specifically framed to be a benefit to help children because the United States did not recognize the emerging government in Bangladesh. And I suppose there were folks who said, why should we have a benefit to help people in Bangladesh when there are people right here in the U.S. who need help? I don't have anything specific I am quoting here. I just know that somebody said that. That's People say things like that. So that what Harris did is, is not insignificant. Musicians using their music as a political statement was, of course, not new at all. We can go all the way back 
to Negro spirituals and follow that branch of the tree right up through blues, folk, rock and roll, rap. I mean, musicians gathering as a collective unit for free and staging a concert that is asking people to give money. And by doing that, everyone, including the musicians, are making a statement about writing what they perceive as a wrong. Maybe it was the mess with the IRS or maybe it was the United States just being sick of politics after Watergate and the fall of Saigon, but it won't be until the end of the 70s that we see some momentum with other benefit concerts. On January 9th, 1979, a group of musicians performed at the Concert for UNICEF in the United Nations General Assembly to raise money for UNICEF and their world hunger programs. It was also a broadcast, I think, on NBC the next day in the United States and other stations that picked it up around the world. The musicians each donated the royalties from one of their songs in addition to playing in this concert, although some only did it for a limited amount of time. So that meant that this song by Rod Stewart was raising money for starving children. kids yes that is rod stewart's foray into disco do you think i'm sexy which was released in november 1978 but hey it was number one on the billboard hot 100 for a month in february 1979 so monetarily speaking not a bad choice at all other artists who played that night included the bgs who made millions for unicef with too much heaven abba played chiquita and earth wind and fire played this one. Sounds like money to me. Uh, That's September by Earth, Wind & Fire, the top 10 hit that was released in November, not not September, 1978. 
Hey, speaking of September 21st, let's talk about No Nukes. Um, This is the festival that occurred on September 19th through September 23rd in 1979. It was officially called The Muse Concerts for a Non-Nuclear Future. And then the album, which I happen to have right here, added the No Nukes part. Who is Muse, you might be asking? Muse is Musicians United for Safe Energy, and it was founded by Jackson Brown, Graham Nash, Bonnie Raitt, Harvey Wasserman, and John Hall. I feel pretty confident that you know who the Rock and Roll Hall of Famers are, but if you do not recognize John Hall, he also founded the band Orleans, which had a couple of my favorite 70s pop hits, Still the One and Dance With Me. Wasserman is an activist, journalist, and author, who, by the way, has his own podcast called Solartopia. Concern about nuclear energy and the possible consequences of using nuclear energy was as high as it had ever been after the meltdown at Three Mile Island near Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. On Wednesday, March 28, 1979, a water pump failed to send water to cool down the Unit 2 reactor, causing the partial meltdown of the reactor. This, in turn, led to a radiation leak, and by Friday, the governor, Dick Thornburg, was telling pregnant women and young children that they should evacuate the area. Let's listen to a bit of the national newscast on ABC that night. For many years, there has been a vigorous debate in this country about the safety of the nation's 72 nuclear energy power plants. That debate is likely to be intensified because of what happened early this morning at a nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania. Max? Frank, it was an accident at the Three Mile Island nuclear power plant, which is located on an island in the Susquehanna River, 10 miles from Harrisburg. A cooling pump broke down, and the plant did just what it was supposed to do, shut itself off. But not before some radioactivity had escaped. We have two reports. First, Bettina Gregory. It happened at the number two generator about four o'clock this morning. Something caused the secondary cooling system to fail. It shut off the reactor, but heat and pressure built up, and some radioactive steam escaped into the building housing the reactor, and eventually out into the plant and the air. William Wittick lives across the river. I heard a uh, very loud noise uh, that sounded like uh, a uh, huge release of uh, steam. And uh, I looked out the window. It was, it was dark, but you could see from the lights over there that there was a geyser of steam that was uh, raising up in the air. Mike Janowski was working inside. Did you see anything? Didn't hear anything. All you hear is the turbine trip, and down she comes, and they announce it, and away you go. Workers were evacuated. The plant was completely shut down. A crew from the Nuclear Regulatory Commission rushed from Washington and sped around all day testing for radiation. Workers in their cars were checked and rechecked for radiation. Some was found. Late today in Washington, the NRC said, quote, there's a hell of a lot of radiation in the reactor building, adding that radiation had penetrated the four-foot-thick walls of that building and was detected as far as one mile away. So, yes, that was a little concerning. Uh, Leaking radiation and the potential impact on our health was something that we worried about in the 1970s. This was not the first time that radiation contamination made the news in the 70s. 28-year-old plutonium plant worker Karen Silkwood died under kind of mysterious circumstances in 1974. 
This was not long after she tried to blow the whistle on her employer for what she said were unsafe practices. In fact, she had a folder of top-secret documents with her that she was going to give to a reporter when she was killed in a car accident. Lawyers for the plant said that she contaminated her own self with plutonium, and her lawyers said the plant was responsible for what would have been a lethal level of contamination in her system had she not actually died in a car crash. It seemed like it was likely that she may have just ended up dying of cancer. You can read about that um, in my show notes, or you could go watch Silkwood, the 1983 movie starring Meryl Streep and Cher. For five nights, a lengthy list of music's finest performed at Madison Square Garden, or as Wasserman described it, they occupied Madison Square Garden. Of course, the founders of Muse performed, but that wasn't all. We also had appearances from people like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, oh, say Bruce Springsteen and the E Street Band, the Doobie Brothers, Carly Simon, James Taylor. On it goes, a very impressive list. 1979 uh, is an interesting year for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers because they're popular, but they're about to become really, really popular. They had formed in 1976 and had released two albums by the time they played at No Nukes. Less than a month after they played at No Nukes, Damn the Torpedoes came out, and that was it. They were on their way to rock and roll superstar status. Refugee and Don't Do Me Like That are on that album. Refugee was released as a single in January 1980, but lucky you if you were in the crowd at the No Nukes Festival because you got a preview. How you doing? How you doing? This is a new song. It's called Refugee. Yes, Refugee from Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. 1980 was also the year that Springsteen released The River, but once again, no nukes ticket holders got a preview. Springsteen, who was playing on his 30th birthday and making jokes about how old he was and his heart holding out, and they brought out a stretcher and put it behind him, gave the lucky fans a preview of what would become a Springsteen classic, the title track to The River. (laughs) 
I come from down in the valley Where mister, when you're young They bring you up to do Like your daddy done I met Mary when we were in high school And she was just 17 We drive out of that valley down to where the fields were green We go down to the river And into the river we dive Oh, down to the river we'd ride Then I got Mary pregnant And man, that was all the full set of live recordings from his two nights of shows um, at the No Nukes Festival. And the man did not just show up and play a couple of songs and go. Although, if you know anything at all about Bruce Springsteen, that is no surprise. He played 12 songs one night, 11 songs the other night, and per his usual, some of the songs were extended out past 10 minutes. It was kind of a tradition for Springsteen to play a series of rock and roll classics like Devil in a Blue Dress as his encore, which he also did on uh, at No Nukes. You can find that listed as Detroit Medley on the No Nuke album. Head on over to FTR70.com if you want to watch the legend at work with that encore. So the people behind No Nukes tried to learn their lesson from the concert for Bangladesh and get all of the money in the right hands in a timely manner, which no doubt helped push the music charity benefit business forward because it was on in the 1980s. Live Aid, Band Aid, Farm Aid, USA for Africa, I know I'm missing some. Ann Colson, a well-respected journalist and editor, had a really nice overview of the music charity festival scene that was published in the Philadelphia Inquirer at the end of June 1985, a couple of weeks before Live Aid. In that article... Uh, she wrote that when all was said and done, No Nukes raised $600,000, which was pretty short of the goal that they had set. People associated with No Nukes will tell you that raising awareness of the problem is as important as raising money at one event. She had another interesting tidbit in that article. She wrote that popular, wis- popular wisdom says, it is easier to get musicians to perform for dying babies than for controversial political issues. I'm sure that is true. And there is also a difference between performing at a benefit for money and simply stating your political opinion at your own show. 
both are taking a stand and making your opinions known, although you may not be prepared for it at a regular show. I sense another podcast episode coming on. That's a little too sticky and a little too involved to get into that here on this show, so we're going to devote a whole show to that later on down the road. That wraps up this episode of For the Record, the 70s. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoy the show, please tell somebody. Hey, we've got a Twitter account. Find us on Twitter and look for our one-year anniversary episode next month. Thanks, everybody. Bye for now. Bye for now.